Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast discussing the strange, eclectic, macabre and esoteric, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author Icy Sedgwick. Icy has written several novels and short stories, many of which involve the supernatural. She's also a keen folklorist and produces a regular blog on an array of fascinating subjects. So I was really excited when she agreed to be on the podcast. We talked about her joint interest in the paranormal and writing, the depiction of the supernatural in books and on film, and how that can influence theories on unknown phenomena in the real world and vice versa. Icy, welcome to the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having us. So on your website, you describe yourself as having written as long as you can remember. Um, so when you did start writing, um, using your mum's typewriter, um, what kind of inspired you to start writing about things about the supernatural and ghosts? And, and was it stuff like that when you were, when you were starting out? Um, oh, God, it's so long ago. I can't remember. I think um, part of it was because we used to go to quite a lot of stately homes um, and because obviously living in Newcastle, there's like hundreds of them in Northumberland. Um, and wherever we went, um, my parents would always buy me like a collection of ghost stories or like myths and legends associated with that place. Um, so I've got loads of, you know, like the, the, the thinnish sort of pamphlet style books that you get where it's like, oh, you know, haunted Dartmoor and things like that. And um, and I think it was because I used to read those every time I went somewhere new that I then started writing like my own versions Um and uh, I've no idea where any of those have gone now. <laughs> They'll be somewhere in the house because I'll never throw anything out. But, um, but yeah, so I think I was pretty much inspired by <laughs> things like that. And I've got, a, I always must have been of a slightly gruesome mindset because I remember going to Edinburgh. I've no idea how old I was. I might have been about 11 or 12. And we oh, went okay. to um, uh, Holyrood Palace or House, whatever it's called. And I was really good. Yeah, and I was gutted to discover that the David Rizzio bloodstain was not the original one. Um, so I think that shows the kind of uh, mindset that I had even as a child. No, no, I know what you mean. I remember um, as a kid going to things like the the London Dungeon um, or the, mm. the York Dungeon in York. And considering that I was probably, I don't know, like eight, eight ten years old, it was a, it was a pretty gruesome the London Dungeon can be pretty gruesome because it's like it's all severed heads on pikes and stuff. And but I don't yeah. remember being, you know, particularly like overly frightened by it. More, more fascinated, I, I think. So yeah, I, I know what you mean, especially the the books about ghosts of a particular area. I mean, the, where I grew up was in rural Lincolnshire, so stately homes there too. And that that, that sounds that sounds familiar to to me as well. So um so. With with that in mind, were you when you were reading these, did it start off as an interest in the supernatural that turned into writing stories, or was it more that you wrote stories and that kind of went alongside an interest in these things? I think the interest probably came first because um, I know I used to read. Um, oh God, do you remember the Point Horror series and Goosebumps and things like that? Um, I, I remember the goosebumps, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the point horror ones were terrible because they were usually just rehashes of existing films which you didn't realise as a 10-year-old and then you grew up and you're like, oh, my God, they've nicked that plot. Um, 
but I used to read things like that or um just like collections of ghost stories and so on and I remember I, I finally got into Stephen King at the age of 30 and I read The Shine and purely because Joey was reading it on Friends and I wanted right. to see what all the fuss was about um so I think it was from there that I started <laughs> making more of an effort to sort of write my own but it was always very much an interest in kind of collecting the real world stories as well um so you know watching things like Most Haunted or um, whenever I went anywhere, being like, oh, are there any ghosts associated with this place? Um, and so, yeah, so I think it's difficult for, to sometimes separate the, the fiction element from just like the weird stuff that I used to come across, just having an interest in it anyway. Ah, okay. So do you do you remember the, the first ghost story that you wrote? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I wish I did, um, but no, I, I genuinely can't remember because um, you've gone back quite some years now. Um, and I think I can't really remember a lot of the stuff that I wrote basically before 2000. It's just all a bit of a blank now. Um, I remember there was one story I wrote at school. I might have been about 15 and we'd been on holiday at the centre parks of all places. And um, I'd come across a tree which had quite clearly been struck by lightning. Um and took a photo of it. And this is in the days when it was on film, you know, none of this like smartphone stuff. And then, um, and then when I got back to school, like we just happened to have like, you know, when you used to do composition in English and um, I had to write a story and I ended up writing one about this lightning struck tree and it involved ghosts and spirits and all that kind of thing. Um, And everybody else wrote like totally normal stuff, but that was what I decided I wanted to do. Oh, okay. No, that sounds great. Um, so what? Um, who who else apart from Stephen King were you were you reading that that wrote ghost stories? Um, I can't. I think I remember reading Shirley Jackson when I was sixteen, because um, it was when that god awful remake of The Haunting came out. Um, right. Yeah. Oh, it was just, just terrible, terrible even, and um, and then I think obviously I got into M R James shortly after. Um. And I just, I, the thing is, I can't always think of specific authors because, you know, when you buy things where they're like the Collins Guide to Ghost Stories or like the Ultimate Penguin Collection of Ghost Stories and you get like lots of different authors. So I used to tend to read them by type rather than particular writer, if that makes sense. Right, okay. Um, but so as a writer of ghost stories, when you when you read... Stories by M. R. James or Shirley Jackson. Now, do you do you kind of see the differences there in in terms of um, the people that wrote them? Because it seems if you look at ghost stories, say I don't know like the ghost in the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, that the the ghost there seems to kind of bear a resemblance to say the ghost of Hamlet's father in Shakespeare, but then between Dickens and M.R. James, it's their the, the stories are different, you know, in terms of in terms of the experience of the of the protagonist, and then as well with with Shirley Jackson as well in the, the haunting of, of of Hill House. Um, again, there there seems to be a shift in the in the in the in the story in the in the kind of narrative of of what's going on. Do you think that's just a a progression in terms of of how stories are written or uh, or is it more kind of 
the, the influences of the writing influences of the time? Is it a, like a style thing, do you think? I think in some cases it sort of reflects the the preoccupation sort of of the time. Um, and I didn't really fully appreciate this until I read um, The Haunted by Owen Davies, which is like a social history of the ghost story. Okay. Um, and it was amazing to see how um, the, the kind of, you know, people used to tell ghost stories a lot more frequently than they do now, um, just to each other. And you'd sort of get the the idea of actually seeing like a manifestation of what I guess would be essentially a person in a sheet was sort of quite common in one era. But then in another era, it might be that you would dream of somebody who died and that's how you'd see their ghost and so on. So I think the difference between Dickens' quite corporeal um, ghosts in uh, Christmas Carol and then you jump forward to sort of M.R. James where it's usually some academic finds something that he shouldn't and weirdness ensues. I think sort of reflects um, maybe the preoccupations of the time. Um, and then, of course, you get to Shirley Jackson, and I think and a lot of academics uh, argue that she was the first one to really make the house itself um, the bad entity, not actually necessarily anything that lived in it. Um, so it, it, it is fascinating, I think, to watch the, the difference. And you, when you look at you know, the narratives around ghosts now and you think i wonder if people will look back on us in like 50 years time and be like oh how quaint <laughs> so it, it is quite uh quite interesting to see the difference and how you know they've gone from like people used to actually you know the cockley and ghost affair where it was all just somebody knocking on a wall and people would keep hours to go and see <laughs> this happening um you know you'd never get that now it would probably be on youtube now i suppose is the difference but yeah yeah so um with that in mind, when when you were writing uh, your your ghost story, which you, your your most recent book, um, the Stolen Ghosts, uh, that idea that that um, it's that idea is quite it's quite an old fashioned one. I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean um, the, the story there. Well, well, actually, can you just tell us a little bit about, about um, the Stolen Ghosts? Well, I think the the. The weird thing with the stolen ghost was, and I, I realised this when I was looking back at quite a lot of my um, ghost stories and things that I'd written in the past, um, a lot right. of them actually, weirdly, for some reason, I keep writing them from the point of view of the ghost rather than necessarily the people being haunted. And I think it's just because I find the ghosts a bit more interesting. Um, but in the uh, in the stolen ghost, I actually came up with Fowlis West to be my cavalier ghost first. Um so he sort of popped into my head and introduced himself. Um, and then I was sort of trying to think, well, you know, what can I do with him? So I suppose rather than having sort of the human um, sort of like element of the story first and then working out how the ghosts fit into that and how the humans deal with the um, the ghosts, it was kind of almost, well, how do the humans fit into the supernatural world? Um, so in it, I've, I've basically um, come up with a, um, a system whereby um, the uh, um, I'm trying the best way to describe it the the afterlife is essentially organised and they've got admin and bureaucracy and so on um, and ghosts are actually assigned hauntings um, and then they go off and they do the haunting they scare people and then they come back again and the idea being that the veil between the worlds has to be kept intact um, so the more that ghosts can kind of convince people that they exist 
the stronger the veil is and that basically keeps the two worlds separate um but obviously then in in the in the in the book um somebody uh somebody decides that they're going to uh, alter how things work shall we say so it becomes a a race against time to try and keep the two worlds separate so that they don't collapse into one another oh okay now that sounds really good that sounds like a brilliant blend of um beetlejuice and uh, monsters inc obviously a completely original idea i'm not, I'm not saying that. No, no, no that sounds that sounds really interesting <laughs> um so so when you were writing that that book and that story um did your own did your own ideas about the supernatural inform that or are you able to kind of write creatively um without that without the need for that or is it do you mean i mean do you i mean not not so much that you believe exactly that that's how the the supernatural works and that's what ghosts are but but it's a very imaginative idea and um do you do, you, do you, did your kind of interesting ghosts and your ideas about the what they might be inform your that that story to any degree i think um it was possibly less my ideas about ghosts and more sort of general folklore i think um that that sort of came into it um and in places you know you do take liberties a bit because you need the plot to do something so you just invent something to make it work which is one of the advantages of writing fantasy um but i think Part of the thing that's always fascinated me is around this idea of um, ghosts who seem to haunt multiple locations. You know, I think like Anne Boleyn's in like umpteen places, and yeah, yeah, and Elizabeth the First seems to pop up randomly in different places. And I was always kind of wondered, is there any sort of rhyme or reason to why that might be? So obviously, you know, looking at it from the the point of view of oh, well, you know, if they've got a schedule that they've got to keep, where you know they're in different places at different times perhaps that's the case um so i think in some cases it was more just me kind of poking fun a little bit at, at some of the the existing ghost narratives shall we say um and then in other cases it was just sort of i think it was more playing with the kind of ideas that people have about ghosts rather than ideas that i have about them if that makes sense yeah I mean, yeah the idea of a bureaucracy in the afterlife is a it's an interesting one. <laughs> well, I just kind of figured it gets everywhere else. So, you know, like, why wouldn't they have sort of assistants and <laughs> councils and people making decisions and so on? So, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, going back to you saying that um, ghosts, the same ghost seems to appear in different places. It, it reminds me of um, when people, uh, sometimes people will say that they remember a past life and they'll more often than not, be a be a famous person so i know lots of people remember being around at winston churchill or or cleopatra or somebody like that it's it's never uh it's, it's rarely uh somebody that's kind of not remarkable yeah <laughs> yeah i've noticed that it's often you know that it's like are they just there because you know it makes a good story to tell tourists yeah i mean i mean it, it definitely it wouldn't hurt i don't think <laughs> So um, the more that you've written and the more that you've uh, kind of read about the supernatural and ghosts and, and folklore, has your ideas about what they might be changed or or has it kind of, do you, do you find that you 
kind of have a general a, a general fixed idea that 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 fits into perhaps something larger as you as you read more um it's difficult because i think particularly when you look at folklore um and you tend to find sort of not the same superstitions for example appearing across the country but they're always a variation on a theme um and there'll be like a reason why there's a local version so why something in northumberland might be slightly different to derbyshire which is then slightly different to cornwall but it's essentially comes from the same route um I think that kind of thing sort of speaks a little bit more to me anyway, to oh, this kind of idea of like, you know, the collective unconscious and sort of, you know, how people can have like somebody can have an idea for a book, say, in America. And at the same time, somebody has the same idea for a book in Australia, but they don't know each other. Yeah, definitely. It's like ideas kind of ping out of nowhere. Um, so I sometimes wonder if some of the stories in folklore are similar um, or if it's just people have had similar preoccupations in different parts of the country. Um, but I think there is a difference between the way that ghosts, I think, appear in, in local legends and just general folklore, because general folklore, there's often some kind of nugget of truth or a bit where you go, well, actually, I can see why they would do that. Um, like I shared one on Folklore Thursday, the Thursday just gone, it was about the idea, you know how there's a superstition that you shouldn't put new shoes on the table yes um, and it came from uh, mining communities because if somebody'd uh, obviously if there'd been an accident and somebody died they would bring the miner shoes home and put them on the table so obviously it became a thing of oh if you put shoes on the table it's kind of inviting um, you know something untoward but then somebody else pointed out yeah and shoes are absolutely full of bugs and whatever you've been walking in and they're just not very hygienic so it's not it's also from that point of view it's a good idea not to put shoes on the table. Um, so I think it was quite fascinating how many um, people still do that now uh, and won't even put new shoes on the table. But it was the fact that there's actually quite a common sense reason not to do something. But then there's a slightly fantastical superstition that sort of goes along with it. Um, whereas with ghost stories, um, you don't have that same... But generally speaking, you don't have that same kind of nugget of truth at the centre of it. So it does make you wonder um, where some of the stories come from. Um, is it the kind of thing where people have just sort of, you know, been bored and entertaining themselves and then it's stuck? Um, or is it more of a question of like Chinese whispers where one person said something and then over the years it's gradually been built up into something or... Uh, or whatever so I do think there's a difference between both of them as to whether I've got a fixed view of what they are um, I I guess I'm relatively scientific in a sense that I'd quite like to see a bit more um, coherent evidence Um, I'm not saying I don't believe I'm not but you know because I do I do believe in something supernatural but I I don't quite know what it is yet and I, I wouldn't want to have a fixed view I'd rather have one that could adapt to to suit the evidence that's that's presented Oh, okay. How do you think that could happen? Because, I mean, I guess at the moment there's still. I mean, I think in terms of an interest in the in these things, in the supernatural and the paranormal, I, I think there's always been an interest there. But I'd say in the 20th century, definitely there was a sort of a dominant idea of being scientific, I suppose, and and viewing everything through a critical eye. Um, and now I I think there is that sort of a, a more of an interest in in 
in looking at this from in a holistic perspective, but in terms of that understanding, do you think that there's the ability there to to find that? Do, do you think that ghosts are something that can be better understood, or, or is there something about them that is part of their is part of what they are? The fact that it's it's very hard to pin down what they are. I think it also depends as well on why someone wants to believe in them. Um, Mm. Because when you look at when there's been sort of mass sort of like cultural acceptance of ghosts and so on, if you think, for example, um, 1920, when you had another burst of spiritualism, um, you know, you just had the First World War and you'd had the Spanish flu outbreak. Obviously, there's a lot of people who'd lost loved ones. So all of a sudden you get this big belief in ghosts because it's almost like people don't want to accept that people have gone and the wish that they could still pass on messages and still contact them and so on. Um, so I think when you look at a lot of the the ghost narratives that you get now, I mean, obviously I'm not talking about the silly ones like the woman who claimed that she was married to a ghost pirate or whatever it was, but the more... <laughs> yeah. you know, the, I wish I was making that up. The, uh, the more sensible ones, as it were. I often wonder if part of it um, comes down to the fact that because, you know, even a century ago, um, you know, people often died at home and then the families cared for the bodies before they went off to be buried. So you had that period where you could acclimatise to the fact that they'd gone and then you could, you know, sort of like move on with the grieving process. Whereas now, because I think death sort of happens very much away from the home and nobody really knows what goes on sort of in hospitals and things and you know there's you're very much divorced from a lot of these um processes i often wonder if that's why there's been sort of another kind of like mass interest in the supernatural and the paranormal and so on um because it's a way of kind of reorientating yourself um with people that you've lost um and uh so i i, I do wonder if that's part of it um and that's why sort of you get different interests in in the supernatural at different periods in history yeah i i I agree there i i think it's it's interesting to kind of um compare the the west with a lot of other places in the in the world for example in thailand there there's a very different kind of cultural relationship with the dead and it's sometimes you can you can sort of presuppose that that the western way of thinking about what it what happens to you after you die is the is the main model and it's and it, and it's not really it's 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 just a idea and I, I i guess what i'm wondering is is do you think that in general um people like culturally do you think we might move into a time when this kind of question is is asked more in the mainstream because it still it still seems to be sort of ghost stories still seem to be kept as as a bit of entertainment really and and that's fine there's, there's nothing wrong with that at all but but in terms of in terms of that question it, that that does seem to still sort of lie on the fringe in terms of being looked at academically do you think that do you think that that can change um i think part of the problem is it will be a really weird thing to throw a lot of money at um because yeah. what good would it actually do um 
Mm. You know, so I think if you were looking at it from a purely financial point of view, if you were looking to fund something, what is it that you would actually be getting out of it? I mean, that's not to say that you couldn't, because, I mean, uh, Thomas Edison was involved in trying to develop um, devices that would help you speak to speak to the dead and so on. So it's and you know, I look at, you know, Conan Doyle, you know, and how he was quite sort of sucked up into all the, the hysteria around ghosts and so on. So I think that there have been quite high profile people interested. Uh, I mean, I'd be quite shocked if uh, if Elon Musk suddenly decided he was going to look into life after death. But then again, I also wouldn't be entirely surprised. Um, and I think this is part of the... I think the minute somebody works out how they can monetize it, then I do think it would probably get quite a lot of um, scientific funding, as um, cynical as that might sound. But I think at the moment it's it's generally seen as a bit more of a fringe thing because of the fact that it doesn't fit nicely into a lot of religious thought for one thing, but also just it wouldn't really affect people's day-to-day lives. Um, so I think it'll always kind of be seen as being a bit of a crackpot thing um, until science kind of can adequately answer, is it is the supernatural real? Is it actually just a mass delusion? Until it can go one way or the other, I think it'll always kind of remain a bit of a fringe science. Yeah, I know what you mean. I th- personally, I think there's there's some sort of, there's, there's a quality there, about it about not knowing you know what i mean it's 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 nice that there's a an ability to have different ideas and i'm i'm not sure that well i don't really think it might be even possible to to completely identify what's going on i think there is that kind of quality to it like a quality that just just can't really be known but yeah i mean i i think that you're right and also a lot of it comes from one one party Def- saying it definitely does exist and then another will counter that and say well it definitely doesn't exist and there seems to be like voices from the middle ideas from the middle ground saying well you know maybe it's not a completely physical thing maybe it's more of a psychological thing and you know it's, it's somewhere it's like a gray area like a, like a lot of things I think the truth probably lies in the middle <laughs> which I think is a very 14 thing I think Charles thought was of that that his whole idea was that like as soon as you as soon as you kind of circumscribe something with an identity you're you're sort of missing the point everything always exists in between two points of of not existing and definitely existing <laughs> so maybe that I mean ghosts ghosts fit into that very well yeah and i think the um i'm just sort of imagining like when you consider the modern technology that we've got now um you know you if you could literally have a ghost in the machine um, I'm just imagining, like, instead of having Alexa for your Amazon Echo, sort of like having one of your dearly departed being the voice of your smart home assistant, that would be quite interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, or um, artificial intelligence finally catches up with with um, humanity, and and people can download themselves into machines. There there being like a like a class war between traditional ghosts and these kind of technological ghosts, like a like a <laughs> like nouveau riche techno ghosts uh, annoying the classic kind of old money old money actual ghosts you know i can <laughs> yeah that's a netflix series i would quite happily watch ah <laughs> uh, yeah no right right i'll 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 um, I'll, uh, I'll get on it <laughs> <laughs> okay so um you you're currently working on a phd thesis on haunted house films right 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, just tell us a little bit about that and 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 how, how you went about putting putting that thesis together and what it sort of what the what the the bones of of your of your thesis are there. Well, it's gone through a couple of iterations, as you can imagine, because PhDs yeah. do. Um, they are very much like a life form of their own. Because um, mm-hmm. basically it was when I did um, my master's um, more than a few years ago. Um, for my dissertation, I ended up looking at um, uh, like the, uh, Freud's theory of the uncanny um, and sort of domestic space. Um, and I had loads of stuff in there about gender, but I mean, every man and his dog writes about gender and horror. So I wasn't really interested in pursuing that anymore. Um and um so through conversations with my first supervisor um i ended up having a look at um specifically haunted house films and which is annoying because there's loads of other haunted building films that would be absolutely awesome to study but you know you've got to narrow them down somehow okay um and uh, and and gradually over time i've had to obviously narrow down a field like a, a time period so i'm looking at 1978 onwards um and there's reasons for that, which I won't bore you with. Um, and then what I was really interested in is how are the hauntings actually represented on screen? So not sort of necessarily, you know, any of these kind of like high philosophical debates about sort of haunting or anything like that. I wanted to look at actually how they're represented on, on screen. Um, so my main areas of focus, obviously, I'm looking at how does the set design affect things? How does the cinematography affect things? And then my third approach is sound. Um, obviously, okay. some films, like The Little Stranger that came out last year, did the sound bit really, really well. And then other films, like, say, Crimson Peak, are much more um, at the set design end of the spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. And so what I'm basically looking at is sort of the haunting itself, I'm still looking at Freud's theory of the uncanny because obviously things can be uncanny without necessarily being haunted. Um, And then I'm looking at sort of concepts around the Gothic as well. Um, But basically it all boils down to sort of like the how and the why filmmakers do hauntings the way that they do. Uh, Okay, so so what films sort of um, best exemplify that? Is there just this Shining Count, I suppose? Is that a haunted house film? hotel yes. um it, it would do um i mean i'm not including it purely because of the fact that i need i had so many films i needed to find a way of, of cutting the material down so i'm literally only focusing on actual houses okay um and um but obviously something like the conjuring um or yes. uh, the woman in black something like that um because i'm i'm focusing also on um english-speaking films because the minute you then start bringing in the j horror and k horror and things like that you've then got to start bringing cultural context into account as well and i just quite simply don't have the word count so um i'm sticking to to sort of basically british and american oh okay yeah so would you say a film like the conjuring is different from uh the woman in black because perhaps the conjuring is more focused on the that the family that's being haunted and the woman in black is is very much about like the the, the 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 ghost in the woman in black is a very it's a very powerful presence isn't it both both in the story and cinematically it's a it's one of the most memorable ghosts i can i can recall really well i think this is the funny thing with um the difference between the two that i can sort of like see in the period i'm looking at that when you look at the american 
haunted house films to things like Amityville as well. Um, hmm. You know, they're just bog standard domestic houses uh, where either in the case of Poltergeist, they've been built somewhere where they shouldn't have been, or in the case of something <laughs> like Amityville or The Haunting in Connecticut, or even The Conjuring, something horrible has happened there in its past. But either way, it's a normal house. Uh, whereas when you look at the British films, you either have uh, a film which is sort of relatively contemporary um, and they're nearly always set in council houses. So things like uh, The Conjuring 2 uh, about the Enfield haunting or When the Lights Go Out, which is the one about the, oh God, is it the monk in Pontefract or something? Yeah, um, I think so, yeah. Um, they're all sort of council houses. Um, or at the other end of the spectrum, you get the period set haunted house films like The Woman in Black or The Awakening where they're like these absolutely massive houses that nobody lives in. Um, so it's weird because you get a lot more class horror, I think, in, in the UK than you do in America. Whereas in America, the, the horror, if it's on economic grounds, it's based on somebody's bought a house because it was really cheap at auction. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. really funny, actually, because I was reading a thread on Facebook last night where someone was like, this happened, no word of a lie. And she'd gone looking at a house and it, honestly, every single thing, if you'd ever watched a horror film, you'd be like, I'm not having this house. And she was like, but it's so pretty and it's got period features. But then her husband was like, it's also got a mysterious door in the basement with like three padlocks on it. We're not buying it. And I just thought it was really funny. You know, the, the trappings of, right. of haunted house films that actually bled out into somebody actually buying a house in real life as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny. You, you, you're right. A lot of the time in American films, um, the the fact the fact that the, there was some kind of awful murder in the past is it's it's almost the the point to kind of sell the story because it'll be kept there'll be it'll be it'll be revealed it's not something that it's revealed on screen it's not something that the characters have kind of learnt about prior to it's it's kind of crucial to the to kind of giving the story it's i guess it's it's energy really and also also like you say they're trapped aren't they they're trapped by well we you know, we've we've already we've already paid for it. We can't if we get out now, we'll we'll be in debt and stuff. So they're sort of trapped. They're trapped with something that they don't understand, and that that kind of that that helps you tell the story, I suppose. Whereas in the the, the British um, films that you mentioned, it's very much um, the the people in them seem to be s- s- sort of suffering already. Like they're it's not it's it's not often that they've moved into a house. Though it's just that something will start happening in their house. So I, I mean, like you were saying, The Conjuring 2, which is based on the the uh, Enfield uh, poltergeist. Uh, I mean, that family was going yeah. through quite a tough time, weren't they, when this stuff started happening? A, a lot of a lot, a, a lot of emotional things that, that would trouble anybody were were happening to these people. And, and, at, a, and at a time when, you know, uh, you know a, a lot of, a lot of um, theories about poltergeists kind of link it to, to children going through puberty and it just seemed to be the a melting pot for a for a poltergeist didn't it i think that case especially yeah and i think the other thing as well with the there's always some obviously this is for narrative purposes in these films but there's always something that sort of is manufactured to keep the people from just moving out so obviously in poltergeist they can't just move out because you know the daughter's in the tv um yeah. and um 
and then in in a lot of the ones where they've bought the house at auction like they've literally sunk all of their money into it so they can't just up and leave whereas in insidious they actually do they do just move um and obviously the problem goes with them um Hmm. Whereas in the British ones, obviously, when they're in a council house, it's like, well, yeah, they could ask to be reassigned another house, but then they're stuck on a waiting list waiting for that to actually happen. And I think that's where the period set ones are really interesting because the people have always got a reason for actually going to the property. So obviously in the Woman in Black 1, Arthur's going there to do his job and to go through um, uh, Alice's papers. In the sequel, they're using it as a house for evacuees, which is actually quite a logical reason for using a house that size and in the awakening florence is actually investigating the disturbances anyway so there almost seems like there's a little bit more logic i think in the british ones that you know people would have more sense than to stay unless they had no choice kind of thing um so i think it's uh that's something that i think i'll end up probably investigating a little bit more once i've actually finished the the PhD because I'm particularly interested in in the British examples. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think it's also the, the 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 horrible. Usually, it's like a mass murder, isn't it? It's like it has to have happened relatively recently, I think. Because I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think if I was if I found a house that was really nice and really cheap, and the there'd been a mass murder a hundred years ago, I'd probably be a bit more comfortable than if it had happened ten years ago. I think I'd if it happened like within recent memory. I'm not sure, but if it happened in the past, I'd be like, "Oh, well, okay." I, I think we can probably handle handle whatever's whatever's there, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I think when you think about it, anyone who's ever watched Time Team, you're like, "There's always something in the UK." There's like, you know, your house might be built on the site of a Roman villa or or a battle site or whatever. Like, there's always something has happened somewhere because we're quite a small country, so we've had to recycle the land quite a lot. So I guess, yeah, you would be like, if you found out that there'd been like, you know, a Roman battle or something on the site, you'd be like, oh, well, you know, that was quite a while ago. Um, I'm sure it's fine. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know if we've got a slightly different um, relationship. It's like when I was watching, I forgot which one it is, I think it's Ghost Hunters, and they'd gone to this historic house and it dated to, in Boston and it dated to like 1899 or something. I'm like, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> that's what you call historic. Um <laughs> Like our our castle in town dates like eleven sixty seven. So I don't know if it's just that, you know, we're a little bit more, you know, used to sort of things like that. But it may also be that I don't know, perhaps we have fewer mass murders as well. I don't know. Yeah, touch wood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've said that now, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you go, go, you were talking earlier on about um set design in Haunted House films. I remember I watched a documentary about Stanley Kubrick called Room 237 and it's all about fans of of Stanley Kubrick and particularly The Shining who've analyzed that film uh, you know in incredible detail and, and think that it's it's a film that has sort of easter eggs in it clues to things um, um and to the point where some of them will have they'll have tracked the path that the kid made you know the, the little boy when he's riding around on his tricycle yeah um which has great which has um great that has great sound design actually i was thinking back to that when the the kind of the bits between when he's on the carpet and when he's on kind of like hardwood floors yeah that's that's really well done Um, and they they mapped that to kind of get an idea of the hotel and and it doesn't 
it doesn't fit like it doesn't work as a model for the hotel and i think early on in the shining there's a scene where they they worked out that jack torrance is in a meeting um with his i think with the person he's taking over from or his or his boss basically um and there's a window in the room but it's yeah. in the middle of the hotel and so fans have looked at this and gone well what's this all about like it's but i think i think perhaps what stanley kubrick was just trying to do was disorient the the viewer to to kind of to kind of bring them into the experience of what it was like to be jack torrance in that in 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 that environment and interestingly I, I think it's it's funny how doing something like that and evoking uh uh that evoking what the protagonist of a story is going through is it's, in a way it's similar to it's, it's similar to being haunted because you're something's happening to you that you're not aware of and you, 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 you know what I mean I like it it's funny how it's funny how if you work hard to create the, the set for a for a haunted house or, or a film set in a haunted location you can sort of create that yourself in a way yeah, yeah. Um, it was just, uh, um, I remember reading somewhere that when they did the, um, uh, when they, I think they actually they obviously built the set for the hotel, and I can't remember because it's that long ago, but they actually changed the number of the room in the film. Um, and as I say, I haven't read the book since I was 13, so I can't remember if it is the same room number or not. And it was because mm-hmm. the hotel that, the, um, that it was based on um, actually didn't have a room 237 but it did have the original room number and we were worried that people wouldn't want to stay there um if they uh if they kept the original um number which i just thought was pretty funny that the, they were worried i'm like you obviously have never heard of film tourism because people were lining up in droves to stay in that particular uh hotel room um but it is so if you try and trace like um oh there's a bit where danny's been upstairs and he's been in 237 and then he comes into the like you know the big room where Jack's typing, um, but you'd think he would come down the stairs and he doesn't. He comes in from the ground floor, and you're like, "Where has he just been wandering around the hotel?" Or how do these spaces actually uh, connect to one another? Um, like I can't place where the bar is. You know where he has the, the chat with the barkeeper. I can't work out where that is. Right. Yeah. Definitely. So in terms of. Um haunted houses do you think do you think that one possible explanation for a house being haunted or 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 being unsettling could could be how it's laid out um not not intentionally but just like an accident of its of its design i think so i mean i think even, I mean, I'm just thinking about sort of when I've, you know, sort of like just been in my house, um, you know, like say you've left a door open at a funny angle, but then it means that you've got like daylight bouncing in off a mirror and then that's creating a weird kind of mark on the wall or something. Um, you can quite easily mistake ordinary things. Um, like, you know, like obviously the, the ubiquitous court stand or whatever, you can missee things if that makes sense and I think obviously you can also mishear things as well so I think you know even in a house which is just like an ordinary sort of like suburban domestic house I think you can you can do that but I think if you were sort of you know maybe staying 
um, you know, in these big old stately homes that they turn into holiday accommodation. I think just years of having watched horror films and things, you would be primed to perhaps see things there that that were, what's the word? I don't want to say that aren't there because it's entirely possible that they are. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, if you've got like a corridor with like, I don't know, like 18 rooms off it, you you would naturally wonder what was behind them, what had happened in those rooms and, and everything. And, you know, when you when you get sort of little sort of weird quirks of, of architecture where they've had to try and fit a staircase in where it doesn't actually fit. Um, and you've then maybe got like one step to slightly different height just to fit them all in and you, you get a sensation that you've fallen down the stairs or something. I think it can sometimes be something as simple as that can make you feel like you're experiencing something supernatural when actually it's just something's not quite right but your brain hasn't necessarily caught up to that yet yeah yeah i know you mean i i live in a small flat and i remember i don't really do it now very often Mm -hmm. but i used to hang my dressing gown up on my bathroom door before i left for work and then you know it was daylight it was fine but then i'd come back and it'd be evening and dark and i'd and I'd come in and the first thing I would see was this like huge seven foot shape <laughs> to my left. And, and it, it got me more than once. And, and eventually I, I learned to just, you know, not, not put that there anymore. And it's, but yeah, I mean, I, it's terrifying. And it was just a, I mean, that to be fair, that was just a, a dressing gown on a door. And, and then um, also, um, you know, those, you know, those big canvas, kind of umbrellas that they have over tables outside for outside dining yeah um when they're when they're down they really look like giant gigantic hooded figures just stood i mean it's it's very eerie that that hasn't happened as much but i remember that happening to me as well just so you're you're right you can like the, the look of something and the perception of something definitely plays a part in in um having having an unsettling experience be it be it supernatural or just accidental yeah i mean i know in um, in newcastle keep there's a particular staircase and obviously given the age of the keep you know the fairly well-worn stairs um and there's one of them i think it's about three from the bottom of this particular flight um it's really 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 worn in the middle so obviously when you go to put your foot on it it's maybe an inch lower than the rest of them but because obviously you're just going down the stairs, you always forget. Go to put your foot down. Your leg then goes down like an extra inch more than then. Then you're like, oh my god, like I'm I'm about to fall. And the number of people when I used to do um, ghost hunts in there who would be like, oh my god, something tried to push me. I'm like, no, you just stood on the stair where most of it's missing. Um, and it it is really unsettling because of the fact that if you actually did fall down those stairs, you'd more or less then go head foot or headlong down the spiral staircases as well. So. It's not an ideal place to fall down the stairs at the best of times. But um, the number of people who instantly assume that something must have been behind them on the stairs and must have tried to push them when it's actually just that's what happens when your foot has to travel an extra inch more than your brain's expecting. Um, So I think it it is quite easily done. Um, And I suppose it just depends on whether you're expecting it or you know about it or, um, you know, how silly you're going to feel when you realise what it actually is. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned there um, helping out on on ghost hunts. Um, what's the most interesting thing that's happened to you on one of those? 
Um, oh, let's see. I think the weirdest thing um, was the time when we were using a Ouija board at Kielder Castle and one of my characters came through. That was pretty odd. Um, and obviously, being of a slightly more scientific disposition, I did try to work out if there was any reason why that might be. Um, but it was the fact that the character referred to me by my real first name, not my pen name. And the three people who were actually using the board at the time, none of them had met me before that evening. None of them knew I had a book coming out because it was about three months away from publication. So nobody knew the name of the character. Um, and the team leader who was leading the session, who did know these things, wasn't touching the board. Um, and I'd been with him all evening. So it wasn't like at any point he'd sort of said to them, oh, by the way, you should do this. Um, and he seemed genuinely as freaked out as I was. So that was pretty unusual. Um, because then it makes you wonder, well, what exactly are fictional characters? Are they actually fictional? Or um, are they sort of something else that you're tapping into in the creation process? Um, I can't really think of anything. I'd love to have a really spectacular story of things manifesting and stuff like that, but that's unfortunately not the way it actually works in reality. No, no, that's great. That It reminds me of um, Alan Moore. I remember him saying that he once met John Constantine in a in a record shop. Yeah. Um I, I and which so yeah, I mean I think that's I think that's really interesting. I mean if anything I think that's that maybe is kind of that's a that's a really good sort of hint as towards what the supernatural might be because I think what you said there like the the, the nature are are fictional characters fictional characters might not be physical but i think they are they do have a reality to them i think mm-hmm. i mean i i mean if you if you ask most people most people probably um if you ask them say who who's inspired you who think of people that have inspired you to to do something or or have inspired you to in your interests and the, the things that you're you like doing i, I would imagine that a lot of people would probably mention some fictional characters as opposed to people in the real world i mean i know i'm a i'm a huge well yeah i mean sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say even when you think of um you know people who decide what they want to do for a living based on a tv program that they liked when they were children yeah you know so I, i do i do think that fictional characters kind of i mean look how you know, absolutely over the top people got about changing the gender of Doctor Who and you're like, I'm, you know, she's not real. <laughs> you know, so I do think that, um, you know, fictional characters perhaps speak to, to people in a way that real people don't, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I I, um, I co-host a, a Star Trek podcast with some friends and we were talking to a guy well, we've we've done two interviews actually. One with a one with a guy who um, is a mycologist, um, and another guy who's an astrobiologist. And both of those people said that they were directly inspired by Star Trek to become, you know, to to go into their professions. It's so the the the, the creative world, the the fictional world, has a has a massive influence on the on the the, the physical world. I think it's 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 oh, very much so. Yeah, definitely. Oh, well, um, I think we're about out of time, I see. This has been a, a really excellent chat. Thank you. Thank you for bearing with me because I, I think I can tell the listeners that this is the, 
this is the third go around we've had at, at doing this. So I, I really appreciate your, your patience with this. Absolutely. My pleasure. So if anyone wants to find out more about your, your books and, and your, your blog and everything, what's, how's, what's the best way to do that? Um, best way to do it would be to go to my website, which is www.icsedgwick.com. And that's Sedgwick with only one E because people will insist on putting one between the G and the W and there isn't one there. Um, and from there, obviously, you can find the link to my blog um, and all my books and so on. Um, or if you're on Twitter, feel free to just grab hold of us at some point because um, I pretty much will talk to anyone <laughs> about um, all things strange and unusual. Um, so that's probably the best place to, to kind of post questions and stuff. And my username on there is just IC Sedgwick as well. I'm really original like that. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, it's, a classic is a classic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you um, I, you you post regularly on Folklore Thursday, don't you? Yes, very much so. That's like the best day of the week. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I I really like it. Cool. Well, thank you again, Icy. No problem. Cheerio. It was really great talking to Icy. As an author of supernatural tales, and with a keen interest in the subject itself, I felt we were really able to get into what makes writing about and investigating the paranormal so interesting and weird. I think she made a good point that large-scale investigation of fringe subjects will only happen if and when it becomes commercially viable to do so. I also think that another problem is that it will rarely help a person's career in science or academia to put your head above the parapet and admit you have an interest in these things, for now at least. Finally, I was fascinated by Icy's account in being contacted by a character from one of her stories at a seance. How that manifested itself, I'm not sure, but I do think that in order to better understand the supernatural, we have to understand that the concept of what is real is not fixed and can meander between fact and fiction and the conscious and unconscious worlds. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>